The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to Stock Doc on Stockhead. My name's Dr. Nigel Finch, and my special guest today is Reese Cohen. Hey, Nigel. Reese, uh, you are a, uh, an expert in the cannabis sector here in Australia. That's what they tell me. They, they certainly do. And, uh, and we had the pleasure of meeting around three years ago, maybe more, at the University of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were doing your uh, thesis in the political economy, mm-hmm. and you covered off on the uh, cannabis sector performance in Colorado. Um, at the time, the University of Sydney was working with one of the listed companies, MGC Pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. on developing a white paper for the cannabis industry in Australia. And uh, you ran that project mm-hmm. for, the, for the university. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, I'd just come out of my honours year and uh, I was in full sort of like thesis writing mode. And, uh, and then I ended up being tasked with, okay, Reese, well, you've got five people at your disposal, none of whom know anything about cannabis. Uh, and we want you to produce a white paper policy document on how medical cannabis should get legalized in Australia mm-hmm. uh, based on international experiences. Also give us an estimate on how many patients we can expect there to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got four weeks. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was full on, um, but it was a lot of fun. And the result I'm still pretty proud of. I think it still holds up after all these years. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. It was, it was a good time. And, and certainly it was a, it was a, it was a good time, but it, and it, but it was a great time um, to start to enter that market. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly your, uh, your reputation precedes you in terms of your knowledge of the of the cannabis sector mm-hmm. uh, globally as well as its mm. performance here in Australia. Yeah. But uh, you've had a, a career um, over this short period where you've ended up working back at the University of Sydney mm-hmm. at the Lambert Initiative. Right. Well, yeah. What's the Lambert Initiative? Oh, so um, I, I spent 18 months at the Lambert Initiative and finished up last June. And the Lambert Initiative is a philanthropically funded medical cannabis research group within the University of Sydney. So it's about 20, 30 odd scientists who are all uh, working under the same roof. And they're looking at uh, various things to do with cannabis, uh, cannabinoids, and the endocannabinoid system, which is our body's internal system that responds to cannabinoids. And trying to understand how cannabinoids work uh, therapeutically and trying to develop new medicines um, that are using cannabinoids or are inspired by cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. So a very interesting um, vantage point for you to start to see what's <laughs> yeah. happening in, in that market. Uh-huh. Um, and subsequently, after leaving the University of Sydney, you've uh, now in your own consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and the types of activities that you undertake? Yeah, great. So I'm, I'm now the, uh, the principal consultant for Freshleaf Analytics, which is a business intelligence and market entry a consulting company focused on the medical cannabis market in Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are part of a larger holding group called Southern Cannabis Holdings, which means that one of my sister companies is Cannabis Access Clinics, which is the largest chain of cannabis prescribers in Australia. Mm-hmm. So that means that Freshleaf Analytics, we get uh, to look under the hood, essentially, of, of uh, what's being prescribed, to whom, for which conditions, uh, what products are on the market, uh, what their packaging size is, what their price is at, what the pharmacy markups are. 
um, and uh, and therefore we are in a very good position to advise people on market entry. Well, it's a, another sort of uh, right place, right time scenario for <laughs> Reese Cohen. I think being in that in that position. So look, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's certainly an exciting sector, mm. and and I think that many investors would see that this sector promises to have some massive potential. Absolutely, yeah. I when I think about sometimes in Australia in particular, people can get a bit. Uh, frustrated or or bogged down and they think, oh, you know, the market's not moving quickly enough or demand isn't increasing quickly enough. Um, But I think we have to step back and remember that in the grand scheme of things, you know, we're still in a world where Yahoo was 10 employees. Like that's that's the that's where we're at as far as the the global long-term evolution of this sector, you know. At the moment, less than a handful of percent of people in the world are able live in a place where it's legal to access medical cannabis or cannabis for some purpose. So really, we've got the rest of the world to go, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm very bullish about it. And, you know, medical cannabis has tremendous potential. Um, uh, Obviously, uh, you know, non-medical cannabis is also a a very desired uh, commodity. Um, You know, it's widely consumed around the world for a number of reasons. Um, And we haven't had the opportunity to regulate these markets previously. Companies haven't been involved in uh, in any kind of cannabis activity up until recently. Well, you know, prior to the prohibition in the in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, long term, very bullish about the sector. Yeah, great. Um, so looking at it from the Australian vantage point, you're bullish about that, and globally. Yeah. yeah. So if we could just pull back from Australia for a moment and start to think about the global trends in, in cannabis. Um, and I'd be particularly interested in just talking about the medical cannabis aspect yeah. of it, because that's certainly where um, the investment opportunity may rest here in Australia. But from the medical uh, cannabis perspective, what just paint uh, a picture for us of, of the transition in, sure. in, 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 so which country would be, uh, in your view, the, the clear leader in, uh, in medical cannabis? I guess it depends on how you define leader. Um, I mean, the one that's generating the most revenue at the moment is Canada, for sure. So Canada's had some kind of medical cannabis program for more than 10 years uh, now at a federal level. Uh, But that was a long and tortuous process. So it was people, patients, suing the federal government in the high court um, to achieve access to medicine as part of their constitutional or bill of rights, right? So... Um, they've ended up with their current medical cannabis framework, which works reasonably well, but there are a few sort of weird features to it that that that, uh, that need to be improved or could could be improved, I think. Yeah. But because they've been up, up and running for the longest, um, they've got the most patients, and you could say they are the leader globally in terms of in terms of that. Okay. Um, the other one that would be you know sort of a, a very close second for various reasons is the United States. You know, the U.S. has had medical cannabis available at the state level in some places since the mid-90s. The problem with the US is, although the market there is absolutely massive uh, and there's tons of, of, of patients who are able to legally access cannabis at the state level, at the federal level, it's still prohibited. It's still illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, now, while we are no longer seeing the sorts of things we used to see a few years ago, talking about DEA raids on medical cannabis dispensaries in state legal places. Um, It's still, this federal prohibition in the states still means that cannabis companies within the US can't export. 
and to most of the time they can't even transport products across state lines. Mm -hmm. So that's why when you look at Australia, for example, you look at all the products that are available in Australia, none of them come from the United States. Certainly in the, in the US, you say the market is, is massive and there's certainly a lot of evidence uh, pointing to that. You know, some commentators are, are looking at uh, just the, perhaps the overinvestment that's happened in that, in that sector um, with something like 9,000 uh, growers. Um, and they say that that's more than the number of breweries across the United States. Yeah. There's, there's reports of some 5,000 uh, specialty retail stores that sell um, cannabis yeah. um, across the United States, 5,000 stores compared to 4,500 Walmart stores, right. you know, and, and pointing the, the the obvious comparison there that there's a massive over overinvestment. Yes. Do you do you see that there's any parallels here in the Australian market in in uh, in overinvestment in capacity? Uh, yes and no. So a couple of things about the states. First of all, your comparison with breweries is interesting because there was a survey that came out of Canada earlier this year, well-respected and large survey about people's spending on cannabis. And if you combine people's spending, Canadians spending on legal and illegal cannabis. It actually exceeds the amount of money that's spent on beer in Canada per year. So the fact that there's more dispensaries or more growers than breweries in the States might sound ridiculous, um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a large market. You know, it's, it's a, as a consumer market, it's as large as the beer or wine market. Uh, it just hasn't, hasn't gotten there yet. On excess capacity within the United States, absolutely. So what I was saying before about how it's not possible to to, for most cannabis products, to transport them across state lines. Yeah. What this means is if you want to operate in multiple states, you've got to create multiple sets of infrastructure in a very inefficient way. Mm -hmm. So instead of having one large centralized cultivation facility that you then export from, you've got to have cultivation facilities in every jurisdiction that you want to operate, which is hugely inefficient, but it's the only way to operate at the moment. So when those state borders come down, once we have some kind of formal legalization at the federal level in the US, mm -hmm. that's going to completely tear the bottom out of the market. Um, the, and you're going to see a huge amount of centralization and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Mm. Um, but you'll also see prices come down as a result, uh, you know, which makes it more accessible to consumers. So, you know, things might even out, but it will be a very disruptive time for the US industry for sure. Okay come to the, your actual question that you asked me, uh, have we seen comparable things happen in Australia? Uh, no, because we don't have that problem that the US has. We have federal legislation and state legislation, uh, which means that if you cultivate in Perth, you can sell in New South Wales and it's not an issue. Mm. Have we had overinvestment in capacity? Potentially. Mm. Uh, I mean, Can Group, uh, which is a, an ASX listed cannabis company, recently announced that their big Mildura facility uh, was going to be producing 70 tons of cannabis per year initially. Uh, and they were gonna build it out in one phase and start producing 70 tons. They've scaled that back to about 20 tons, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, perhaps there has been uh, some overinvestment or over eagerness in terms of facility build outs. Yeah. Um, but that's because there has historically, as in like, you know, say more than 12 months ago, been lots of money flowing around. There's lots of attention and energy in the cannabis sector excited about it. Mm. Uh, and we're throwing money at it. Yeah. And the idea was to go uh, go big and go early. You know, The mm -hmm. idea was if you're the first company that, or one of the first companies that's got a huge cultivation facility, mm -hmm. you'll be able to compete. Um, your margins will be such that you can outcompete everyone else in terms of price. 
and you'll drive them out. So it was sort of like, I guess, sort of chicken, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Everyone's trying to be the first and the biggest to market. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it turns out that the market doesn't grow as fast as you were expecting in terms of, you know, the availability for people to actually buy the products that you're meant to be producing, then that can throw a bit of cold water on things. The, uh, there's been a lot of headwind in the um, ASX listed market on marijuana stocks. And certainly we've seen, a, a, I guess, a, a bursting of a bubble here. Um, some of the stocks from some of the leading um, players depreciating as much as um, as 60 percent mm -hmm. um, and, and and pulling back uh, there's been a number of factors contributing to that and unfortunate changes to the way that some of the brokers interact with putting orders on throw uh, there was a story around uh, Pershing removing a number of pot stocks from its clearing facility uh, so this basically orphaned um, some of Australia's leading brokers from trading in pot stocks but I mean that alone can't account for the decline that we've seen in um, uh, in the pot stock. So, mm -hmm. what what's your observations of the retreat that we've seen? You're spot on that it's been a bubble and the bubble's burst. Uh, and you know, as much as I am very very bullish about the long term prospects for this industry, short term there's a lot more work that needs to get done. There's a lot of slow and steady regulatory reform that needs to happen, not just in Australia but in lots of other countries around the world before there's sufficient legal demand to justify these kinds of valuations. I'm quite, I mean, you know, I don't own any cannabis stock, so I don't mind that this has happened. I'm actually quite happy about it because it, it takes a lot of, the, it will take a lot of the fluff out of the industry. You know, there's a lot of companies that, that get set up, you know, and basically all they've got is a website and a non-binding letter of intent with someone else. And they can go out and fundraise and, you know, get millions of dollars. And, and I don't think that's good for anyone. Um, especially the legit operators that are doing it properly and have solid fundamentals because they end up being buffeted by these kinds of headwinds like everyone else, regardless of whether they're, they're real or, 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 or fantasy company. Looking across the supply chain here, I'm interested to get some thoughts around um, opportunities for stock price performance throughout the supply chain. So certainly um, in relation to the number of products and the number of prescribers, are you able to, to give us uh, some insights into the size of the market here? You know, yeah. uh, what, what products are being prescribed and, um, and, and who's prescribing? So there are about 100 different individual products available for doctors to prescribe in Australia today. Most of those, and by that I mean more than 75% of those, would be oil products. So these are um, uh, medium chain triglyceride oils or coconut oil with ca cannabinoids in it that with a dropper that you ingest, so you, you know, put it in your tongue and you swallow it. That's the most commonly prescribed product type in Australia. And those will come in different varieties. So you'll have different strengths and you'll have different ratios of active ingredients, the key ones being THC and CBD. Um, and uh, about a third or just over a third of prescriptions in Australia are for CBD only products. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. One is, you know, sometimes it's, it's more medically appropriate to prescribe a CBD product than a THC product. Sometimes people might have uh, contraindications, like they've got mental health issues or substance use history. Um, or uh, what, what we're seeing a lot of is people who want to be able to drive and retain their driver's license. Because mm -hmm. at the moment in Australia, the driving laws say if you are behind the wheel of a car and, and you're stopped 
and there's a, there's a random drug test and you test positive for the presence of THC, it doesn't matter if you're impaired at the time of driving and it doesn't matter if you're a prescribed medical cannabis patient, that's an offence under the law. Um, so that's motivating a lot of people to try CBD as opposed to THC containing products. Mm -hmm. Um, there's probably around 9,000, approaching 10,000 active patients in the market today in Australia. Yeah. And that's increasing about 20% month on month. And that trend's been holding for the last sort of nine months or so. So what we're seeing now is a bit of a hockey stick moment in terms of the number of patients in Australia. And Freshleaf Analytics, uh, our prediction is that by the end of next year, it wouldn't be unreasonable to see 30 to 50,000 patients, mm -hmm. active patients, mm -hmm. be current in, in the Australian market. So with that growth in the number of patients, mm -hmm. um, where are the opportunities then for investment? Well, in terms of opportunities for investment, for most doctors, when they're thinking about which product to prescribe to their patient, obviously, you know, which one's most medically appropriate is the primary consideration. But there's lots of different products or similar products out there. And doctors will increasingly start choosing products based on price. Uh, products are still probably too expensive for most patients. People are spending five to $15 a day on their prescribed cannabis medicine. Um, so the opportunities for a low cost um, producer are, are significant. There's lots of room to move in terms of pricing and that will help sort of increase patient numbers as well. So I, th I think that's probably a good place to start. In terms of Australia specifically and our, and our particular opportunities, I don't think Australia is well placed to be a, a high, low cost, high volume cultivator necessarily. I mean, we will be able to play in that space for five years, 10 years, but eventually the traditional low cost agricultural countries will, will pick up yeah. the slack, right? The opportunity for Australia is medical scientific research and development, I think. Mm -hmm. It's relatively easy, in fact, it's very easy to do clinical trials in Australia compared with the United States or even with Canada. We have a very strong pharmaceutically focused regulatory framework for cannabis medicines in Australia. We're probably the most pharmaceutically rigorous country in the world when it comes to cannabis regulations. Mm -hmm. So that means quality standards, you know, safety standards, but what that also means is standardization of products so that we know, okay, we wanna run a clinical trial on product X, product X is gonna be the same product month on month. Um, and that's you know, sort of required by the legislation, right? Um, we've got a highly skilled workforce, uh, we've got a well-established biotech um, research program, and we're one of the first countries in the world to legalize medical cannabis. So I think all of those things combined, the opportunities for new product development, uh, uh, observational studies, full-scale clinical trials, uh, novel uh, molecular entity uh, research and development. I think that's where Australia will really end up playing long-term. What are some of the companies that you think are well positioned to move into that sector that, that's starting to, to show that they're um, a solid understanding of the cultivation and manufacture of, of, um, of these new drugs? Well, we've got a few large uh, sort of industry champions, I guess you could say. So the obvious one is Can Group. They were the first company in Australia to get their license. Um, they're a very large company compared to most of the others. They are physically cultivating cannabis plants at the moment and have been for a while. Um, they have yet to bring a product to market, which, which sort of strikes some people as a bit curious because uh, it has been you know, a few years now um, since they got their license. Um, and we're looking forward to can products sort of hitting the market soon. That would be nice. I mean, more Australian products would be nice in general. We've had two companies, two Aussie companies, um, cultivate and bring products to market so far. Um, those are Little Green Pharma based out of WA and ANTG um, uh, in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. um, they're both private companies. 
Um, so, you know, there's, I'm, I'm not sure what the investment opportunities there are. Um, but in terms of the other listed companies, I mean, there's a, there's a few different ones that, that, that have some interesting sort of nuances to them, like say, like Elixinol, for example. That's an Australian listed company that doesn't currently, to my knowledge, supply products into Australia because what they're doing is engaging in uh, hemp extract products as opposed to pharmaceutical medical cannabis products. So these are much lower cost uh, to produce uh, and they sell these products globally and, and do very well, move lots of units. Um, but because of Australia's stringent pharmaceutical regulatory requirements, um, those products aren't yet able to be uh, brought to Australian patients. The Office of Gr uh, Drug Control is the um, regulatory office um, here in Australia. I understand that they've recently undertaken a review. Could you talk us through uh, what that review was and perhaps your involvement? Well, the, the review was a, it was a the, the legislation that sets out how licenses and permits are issued in Australia and also basically sets out how the Office of Drug Control manages cannabis companies. Uh, it's the, the Narcotic uh, Drugs Act. Um, and uh, there was the amendments to the Narcotic Drugs Act which created the medical cannabis commercial framework in Australia. When those amendments were passed in 2016, it was written into the legislation that, that it would be reviewed within two years of its operation. Um, so we hit that two year mark uh, this year and the government called a review. The results came out a few months ago uh, and it was um, headed by John McMillan, um, AO. And it was a great exercise. I think everyone in the industry was very pleased with the, with the results, a very thorough review, um, lots of detail, lots of really solid, um, just common sense recommendations for improvements, right? Um, and there were 26 top line recommendations that came out of that. The federal government has agreed in principle to implement all of those recommendations. So everyone's looking forward to, to some of the gremlins being sort of worked out of the, the system to some extent. Yeah. Um, and there were a, a bunch of uh, public submissions made um, to, to inform that review, including one from, uh, from my employer at the time, which was the, the Lambert Initiative at the University of Sydney. Mm, excellent. Mm. So it sounds like there's this uh, hockey stick projection in terms of the number of patients that um, being prescribed um, medical cannabis products here in Australia. Um, the regulators on solid ground and has, has taken some feedback from um, uh, as part of this review process. So maybe some of the regulatory hurdles that have been headwinds into this sector um, might be starting to abate. Um, with a bigger bigger uptake from from consumers, yeah. So, um, despite the retraction in the share prices of, of, uh, of many of the pot stocks here in Australia, um, it does sound like that there's uh, you know they are inching mm -hmm. ahead positively. I think so. I mean the the market in Australia has always been anemic, and it took a lot of kicking and screaming to get us to the point where patient access has improved sufficiently to allow patient numbers to grow. This didn't happen automatically. There was a lot of advocacy, a lot of patient-led advocacy that went into, uh, you know, barracking the various states and territories to improve their systems, put political pressure on the federal government. Um, but I think it's all, I think most of the fundamental problems with patient access in Australia that can be addressed in the existing framework have been addressed. And I think we, I mean, we are already seeing that translate into increases as I said, about 20% compound month-on-month -month increases in the number of patients getting access in Australia. 
Um, I mean, for, for Australians, the, the, the three main barriers or challenges that they have getting access to medical cannabis today, one, finding a doctor who's interested in medical cannabis and wants to give it a go, which is why a lot of people end up going to um, cannabis clinics or ac patient access facilitators. Um, the other one is cost, cost of these products. Patients are spending, you know, two to four hundred dollars a month sometimes on their medicine. That's quite expensive for people, and there's no subsidies available uh, from the federal government. And the third one is the driving issue, which I touched on earlier. People are concerned that if they take a THC-containing cannabis medicine, they essentially have to either risk being done for drugged driving or give up driving, and uh, that's a bitter pill to swallow for, for some. Yeah. yeah, pardon the pun. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, Rhys Cowan from uh, Fresh Leaf Analytics, thank you very much for joining us today thank and you. sharing your views on the cannabis sector here in Australia. And thanks to our segment producer, Riley June.